Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. This time I'm going to be talking with my guest about what the Liberal Democrats should learn from Donald Trump. Perhaps not the obvious place to look for inspiration, but hey, he won a national election, upturning political establishments and defying unfriendly media along the way. Perhaps something then the Liberal Democrats can look to aspire to in our own way too. So to discuss this topic, I'm joined today by Rob Blackie, who I used to work with at Lib Dem HQ many years ago when Rob was maestro of costing manifesto policies and who has since carved out a very successful career in marketing and communications. Welcome, Rob. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, first up, I guess when somebody says we can learn from that person, some people wrongly assume that you must secretly like and support them. So just to be clear about <laughs> Donald Trump, on a scale from one to ten, where do you rate the president of the United States? About a thousand on the dislike scale. <laughs> OK, <laughs> so onto the onto the substance uh, of what we can maybe though learn from him, even if we have very different political views from him, because after all, not everything he did was a disaster in the sense that he's won a national yeah. election. And you've written particularly about three mind tricks of his that apply to communication in, in general. So maybe we should start off by stepping through what those are. And the first one that you mentioned is to do with simplicity. Yeah, just, just to take a step back from that, we now have sort of 50, 60 years of psychological research mm. about what makes communications effective. Turning that into practice, though, can be tricky. Um, but one of the really interesting things that happens online now is digital marketing uh, allows us to measure how people respond to messages mm. uh, and learn more about what's effective. Uh, and so when I went back and looked at what Donald Trump does, there are three things he does, which I think are very deeply rooted in the science of this. Uh, and the first one of them is, is about simplicity, which is our brains confuse simple messages with good messages and true messages. Basically, if our brain finds it easy to understand something, it assumes that it's true. And there's a few examples of that. Uh, the first one of which I've given is a famous psychological test where uh, they, they presented two statements about when Adolf Hitler was born. Um, and the one which was presented in bold people are much more likely to believe. Now, the, the twist in this tale is that actually both of them were lies. Uh, but the fact is, the bold one was easier to read. And there are many studies showing this. Simpler words, shorter sentences, shorter paragraphs, simple concepts, things that are easy to understand that a six-year-old could understand are easier for all humans' brains to understand. So if you change your communications, you make it simpler, it normally becomes more effective. And that's um, quite at odds with, I think, the instinct of many uh, maybe better educated people who can, assume, can sort of go from thinking that simplicity equals dumbing down, equals less plausible and less trustworthy. Oh, absolutely. And, and I was just thinking that, for example, if I read a book, if a book has footnotes and a bibliography, I find that supporting material makes it more believable. Um, now, obviously, that's not necessarily the same as saying the sentences in the heart of the pages need to be more complex to make uh, the communication more effective and more believable for me. But there presumably are some occasions where, you know, that's not just me, that, but where the supporting paraphernalia can help make something more believable where it's not always simplicity that's best. I think the supporting stuff is, is important 
for the 10% of people who want lots of detail. Uh, but you've got to cater for the 90% uh, where the first job is to make it easy for them to understand uh, what's going on. Uh, there's actually an interesting study done at American U University where students were asked to write um, and the more long words are used, the less intelligent uh, and credible their peer group found them in their essays. Uh, and there's a lot of research that shows that. I did some work um, on why it was that NHS workers weren't getting the flu vaccine. Mm. Uh, and one of the things we discovered was, well, they believed in the same myths about the flu vaccine that everyone else believed in. And why was that? Well, because the myths were presented in very interesting and easy to understand ways. Um, but the truth was often presented in sort of template pages of small type text, long sentences, very scientific words, quite hard to understand. And even doctors uh, and nurses who have got serious professional qualifications, they're human beings too, and their brains uh, sort of strain when they have to read lots of long words and, uh, and long sentences. And so I, I've applied this to Trump, actually, uh, where if you look at what, how, what's the age you need to be to understand a Trump speech, and I took a, a randomly selected Trump speech uh, and found it was 11 years old, uh, while for a randomly selected Hillary Clinton speech, it was uh, 15 years old. Now, 15 years old is still actually quite a clearly written speech. Uh, most British political speeches probably wouldn't get that, the quality of the Clinton speech. Uh, and similarly, the number of words in every sentence, uh, Trump has much shorter sentences uh, than Clinton, and he has much more re repetition. Um, and and there's a paragraph I picked out, because I thought it was a perfect example of this, where Tr Trump says, and it's stronger today, and it's a lot stronger today than it was two and a half years ago. I can tell you that, a lot stronger today, a lot stronger, $700 billion we spent, and then 716 billion, that with a B. And this year it's 738 billion. So we rebuilt your military and it's stronger than ever before. Uh, he really just says that the military is stronger. Uh, and, I, and I thought, well, if you wanted to be a classic policy wonk, you would write that entire section of the speech mm. in one sentence. And that sentence would be, we have increased military spending by 5% in the last two years. They're exactly the same uh, facts, uh, but presented in a completely different way. And the Trump way of presenting it is much easier for our brains to, uh, to understand uh, than the policy one way. Uh, and I think the consequence of that, it means people by default are more likely uh, to believe what Trump says. I guess one parallel, because I think one of the problems often is in, with learning trying to learn lessons from people you disagree with, and I suspect most listeners to this episode will not be Donald Trump fans, is it's quite easy to be too dismissive. And so it might be helpful to sort of draw the parallel actually between what you're saying about Donald Trump and say Ernest Hemingway, you know, who was absolutely brilliant at that really sparse language. And, you know, nobody thinks of Hemingway as being a dumbed down writer who was really writing for children, but somehow tried to pass himself as, a, as an adult author. You know, he, he managed real simplicity, so much so that there's a free app, which I'll include in the show notes, a link to the Hemingway app, which will analyse your speech. Now, essentially what it's doing is the same as what you've just done. You say, you know, how simple can you make this? How many extraneous words can you 
strip out. But I think Trump seems to really go to town on the repetition bit as well, doesn't he? Yeah, and the repetition bit matters a lot because when your brain hears something, bits of your brain connect to each other, which make it easier for your brain next time it hears it because it remembers it. Mm. Um, and what happens, what that means is the more you hear something, uh, the easier it is for your brain and therefore the more likely it is to believe it's true. So that's why repetition is incredibly important in communications. Now, repetition can both be word for word, but it can also be of concepts, and both of those work. Um, so obviously, in many ways, it's better to do word for word repetition, because that's a purest form. Uh, but you know, re I recognize you know, there are situations where it's absurd to do that. Uh, if you're actually just repeating the, the concepts, that helps as well. Uh, and, and again, there are ways you can build that in. Um, a lot of the tools for search engine optimization that people use for writing text for websites, uh, they'll give you will decide, I want my article to appear in Google search results um, for the word Donald Trump or for the phrase Donald Trump communications. Uh, and then the tools will see how often do you use that phrase in the article you write. And it'll say, well, actually, you're not using that enough. You've not got enough repetition built into it. Um, so funny enough, often things that work for the human brain also work uh, for other purposes. Uh, and that tool, uh, the tool I use, which is called Yoast, is actually, mm. you end up, it ends up being very like a Hemingway tool. Mm. Um, now, if you are a phenomenally good writer, you don't always want to write like Hemingway. But for 99% of us, we are not phenomenally good writers. And writing more like Hemingway makes us much better. Mm. And it, yeah, your point about text that has been really heavily tuned to perform well in search engine results, it actually draws out a point I've not really explicitly noticed before. But quite often, if I'm looking at, say, a, a new digital tool or service, or I want something to do some a particular task, and therefore looking at different websites from different providers, there is something that is a bit just banal almost about the really finely tuned text there's something about the style that just gets a little bit in your face and over the top that said it is almost always really really clear what the product does and actually the things that i find most frustrating and unhelpful is the is the information that held you know this is an amazing tool for designers that will really help you till and just like, tell me what it does tell me what it actually does and and i and actually that real discipline of honing in on sort of SEO optimized text is, is a form of sort of Donald Trump speech writing in a way. It's what is the, the one key thing we want people to know and how many different ways can we say it in a short period of time to hammer it home? Yeah, and, and I think some people who worry about oversimplification, they forget this is the beginning of your communications. Mm -hmm. And I think you know, good communication probably needs as a four pillars to it, what, you know, it's got a slogan, which is the most simplified form of it possible. Uh, there's then probably a paragraph that gives a little bit of meat to it. And probably 90% of people ne never go beyond those two things. Um, but then behind it, there's probably what you might call the speech, which is for the 10% of people who want to know more. And there's probably a book, which is for one in 10,000 who really want to know more. Um, <laughs> and, say that and actually, a writer that so few people read books. No, <laughs> well, no, but one in 10,000 is, you know, you might have a, you know, a few, uh, 5,000, 6,000 people reading your book. Not, or maybe you aim for more readers than that. <laughs> but you, you need, um, 
uh, if you have all four of those, you have a coherent communication yeah. strategy uh, uh, hold together. And I much more commonly see people who have the book and maybe the speech, but they don't have the paragraph and, and the slogan. Strangely, the government at the moment with their communications around coronavirus uh, seems to have a bit of the opposite problem where they've got the paragraph and the slogan. Yeah. They're actually quite good at that in many ways, but they haven't got the, the, detail, the, the next level of detail down so that when people ask perfectly reasonable questions about uh, can I meet my mum, uh, then they don't actually really have an answer for that. And so there are situations where that matters. Coronavirus is an unusual one. You've got the whole country paying attention to an issue. People not paying much attention is a much more common thing. Yeah, I, I think with coronavirus communication, as you say, one of the problems is people immediately want detail relevant to themselves. So I was quite struck that in Boris Johnson's speech where he unveiled the first bit of easing of the lockdown, he didn't mention wearing face masks at all. But the 50 pages or so of detail that came out the following day did talk about face masks. And yeah, I think a lot of people will be in the position that I'm in, where that's the thing that most immediately affects my day to day life, because I'm lucky that I can work yeah. from home. So many of the other issues don't don't that have changed don't affect me. Uh, but the face masks one, that's a big thing. And yet that was just not in there at all. But as you say, it is maybe slightly unusual that with coronavirus communications, the audience wants to know more. Whilst with most political yeah. communications, the problem is the audience is much happier to go and think about things other than politics. And, and, and just as an example of how, how common it is that people don't want to know more, uh, I worked on a stop smoking campaign some years back. Uh, and the people who designed the app for this campaign uh, discovered that if they made the sign up slow, slightly simpler, they got about 10 or 20% more people signing up to give up smoking. Now, if you think of that rationally, that makes no sense whatsoever, because if you, if you succeed at giving up smoking, you're probably adding 10 years to your life. Mm. Um, yeah, but at the other end, that app sign up flow, you save a few seconds. So the, the ratio is completely ridiculous. Yeah. But of course, it's true, that's just not the way we make decisions. Most of the time, we are easily distracted, even for things which, which are rationally quite important. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about brevity, ironically. <laughs> Shall we move on to the second uh, of the key lessons from Donald Trump's style of communication? Yeah. The second thing really is, is about grabbing people's attention, which is it, it's impossible to influence somebody if they don't pay any attention. In the modern world, you've got to grab their attention away from the huge competition but uh, there is uh, people's attention, you know, whether or not that's what's on Facebook, uh, just the world around them, their family, their friends, TV, all that stuff you're competing with. And what strikes me to hear Trump is, he is extraordinarily good at that. And I think there's a deep psychological neediness in Trump where he clearly, whatever in his background drives this, he just wants people to be looking at him the whole time. So I took out a, a random tweet of his, which was from the Cinco de Mayo, the, you know, the Mexican uh, 5th of May uh, celebration, where there was a picture of Trump eating a uh, taco bowl, saying how great it is at Trump Tower. I mean, it is ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's kind of borderline insulting message to say that the most important thing about Mexicans is, are their tacos on their main national day. But, but it, it grabs attention. And for that day, everyone, that's what people talk about, is, is what he does. Um, 
and the incredible thing about Trump is how he can do that every day. Um, and if you look at the um, uh, the amount of spending that went on in the last election in America, Clinton actually spent twice as much as Trump on advertising, but Trump got unbelievably large amounts of free advertising from the media, both traditional media like TV and newspapers and radio, but also social media. Uh, so in total, um, Trump got about 40% more headspace than Clinton. And what that meant was people started thinking about issues that Trump talked about. Um, and so things like immigration uh, and gun control and terrorism shot up the agenda. Uh, and uh, areas where Democrats were stronger fell down the agenda because people were constantly talking on Trump's um, agenda. Um, and, and I think this fighting works for all sorts of reasons. Um, but one of the things I think has been discussed a bit is how it manipulates social networks. Um, when a social network sees a picture of a baby, yeah. the computer doesn't really know it's a baby. Yeah. What it knows is that lots of people are leaving comments and sharing this picture and clicking like and love. Uh, and they, they're interacting in ways that social network assumes is good. Yeah. Um, and so pictures of babies get huge reach on social networks. But the funny thing is, a fight also gets huge reach on social networks because the people who disagree with each other uh, look like they're engaging in exactly the same way as they do uh, with a baby. Um, I actually discovered this for myself by accident. I read a very, I wrote a very sort of reasonable article on Brexit a few years back, uh, but it instantly in social media descended into fight between sort of two sides on Brexit. Um, and Facebook's reaction to that was to tell me this is the best thing I'd ever written and give me really cheap advertising on it. Um, and so these sites, they give you reach for free. They also make your advertising cheaper and they take away headspace because people, if they're thinking about you, there's no space for them to think about your opponents. Uh, and I did this analysis of a randomly chosen week for, for Trump. And amazingly, uh, on six out of the seven days, he managed to uh, pick some major fri uh, fight that dominated headlines. Yeah, and, and on, on the Saturday, I think he went golfing and, and took a day off. But on the Sunday, he came back and threatened to have a war with Iran. Um, and, and it's obviously, it, it, it's an insane way of living that he has. And, and it's, it's an extreme behavior, uh, but it's actually super effective. Uh, and it's a very hard one to counter uh, because uh, most people are, when their opponent says something really stupid and offensive, what they want to do is jump in and tell everyone why that person's wrong. And sometimes actually finding a way to get your own side just to ignore them mm. uh, may be the most effective thing. Mm. Uh, or maybe to uh, find some way to actually, you may have to actually uh, do the opposite um, and attack them in some way uh, that forces them, uh, 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 forces them onto your agenda. Something that somebody actually did this very cleverly this week it was an organization called the Lincoln Project. Mm. Um, who did a, they did an ad, a, a Republicans who are against Trump, and they did an ad attacking Trump, and they spent five thousand dollars to advertise it on Fox News, mm. but it exactly the segment everyone knows that uh, Trump watches mm. in the morning, uh, and it enraged Trump so much that then he tweeted about it, mm. starting off an enormous fight, but of course on the this organization's um, agenda, and so actually I think that was quite that was quite a clever strategy um, 
for for doing it. And of course, this relies you know, on you having an opponent who is easily yeah. uh, uh, easily provoked. I just want to dive into that example a little bit more because I think that one of the, I mean, in a way, I mean, I guess the Liberal Democrats could decide, you know, that we think Britain should go to war with Iran. Um, but even if we did, <laughs> it would have rather less impact because we're just inherently not as newsworthy as Donald Trump, even when he was yeah. one of a Republican field of candidates was. Um, and I think there are some sort of milder ways of addressing some of the points that you've sort of raised. So you can... Yeah you can generate engagement on social media through triggering emotions other than anger or anger or hatred. Yeah. And definitely you need to trigger those emotions, but there are other ways of doing it. Tom Brake did this really successfully a few years back uh, when he was an MP, posting a photo of his local hospital and getting people to express their love for the hospital by engaging with the photo. So you can do it in other ways. And in a way, the example of running a very targeted ad is sort of what you know used to be a a standard election tactic of you would unveil one poster billboard poster in one place and get media Absolutely, attention yeah. and everyone else but i think what the lincoln project example really nicely illustrates is something that does go further than those more traditional tactics which is that if triggering anger is not the thing that you want to do because that's not the world that you want and it's not your message yeah. nonetheless provoking someone else who is prone to anger can can achieve the desired outcome because you're not sinking to their level, but you are nonetheless making use of those sorts of mechanisms that you talked about. Yes, that's right. And I, I think as, as a broader point, when we look at what we're doing, we also have to think about why would people bother talking about this? Mm. Uh, and so, sometimes being funny is good there. Uh, you know, you've all talked about you know, sort of putting giant ducks in the puddles in potholes. Mm or you know, stuff like that. Uh, the London Lib Dems did a, a litter pick a few months back where um, we got the Wombles to do a litter, litter pick in Wimbledon. Uh, having lectured everyone, how we had to be more interesting did you, Do you appear in any of those photos? Yeah, Rob, well, I, 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 I had no choice but to dress up as a Womble, <laughs> having told everyone that this going was the, in the show thing notes. we had to do. Going in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but I, and more generally, I think it, it doesn't, yeah, as you say, it can be positive things. Mm. But when they're positive, we have to think about how are they more like a baby? Uh, and I think one of the mm. challenges, a lot of local campaigning, uh, if done badly, can look a bit whingy. Uh, and I think ways you can make it look fun and interesting uh, are, are always uh, going to be more successful that way. Mm. Okay, let's turn to the third then of your your three tricks. We've talked about brevity, we've talked about grabbing attention, and then the third one is? Third one is, is looking popular. Uh, again, something you've talked about a lot in the past, uh, but there's a huge amount of psychological evidence uh, that we like and support and trust and uh, are more likely to vote for people who we think are already popular. Uh, and there are lots of evolutionary reasons for this. Uh, but the key thing here uh, is that showing that you are alone and a trendsetter uh, is great if you're an avant-garde artist or fashion designer, but it's actually not great if you want to win an election or, or sell a mainstream product to most people. Most people actually want to feel that you are a mainstream choice. Uh, and there's lots of scientific evidence of this. Even things like Facebook pages 
if they advertise to you, they show you which friends of yours mm. um, already like that page. And there's evidence that you're about 20% more likely to buy a product if it comes from a page where a friend of yours has liked that product. Uh, and Trump, again, his, his deep neediness means he's actually instinctively very good at this. Mm. So he constantly tries to appear as celebrities like sort of Kanye West. Um, he tries to get onto TV and to film every opportunity. Uh, people uh, of, of my generation will remember that he, he has a cameo role right back in the 80s in uh, Home Alone 2. I assume that was a joke when I first heard it. I did have to hunt out the clip online to watch it to realise when I first came across it. No, it is actually true. He does appear in Home Alone. I actually got, I got, I got my children um uh to to watch home alone 2 with me uh, a few months ago and uh there was a look of horror on their faces when they suddenly realized donald trump was had invaded their film <laughs> um uh obviously he, he hosted the apprentice massive tv show in america for years and years um and then early on in his career he had a few tricks one of which was was fantastic which was uh where he was opening a building site uh he had a builder's helmet but rather than just a standard builder's helmet you know, he could, you know a normal politician or, or celebrity aware, he actually got a gold builder's helmet. Um, <laughs> I'm sure I absolutely hope this is protecting you. But uh, again, it, it says I'm rich and I'm powerful mm. and successful. Uh, and he always likes to be obviously uh, photographed uh, with huge crowds. Uh, and I found this amazing interview of somebody who had done a documentary about him about 20 years ago, where he said, make fun of my kids, you know, do whatever you want. You're the only thing I don't want you to do is just don't say I don't have that much money. <laughs> uh, and I think that's if you look at the things he reacts to mm. viscerally, they're all about not being the biggest and the most important and the richest. Uh, and, and there's actually quite a lot of evidence he's quite a lot poorer than he says he is. Mm. Uh, but that, uh, he's really worried about people thinking that. Uh, and again, I, I pulled out one of the, the same speech I, I looked at earlier. Um, and in the speech, he, you know, he talks about having the proudest and the toughest people in the military. And then he talks about. Uh, Kentucky where he is. He says, it's got record numbers right now. It's got the best year they've ever had in just about every category, which is quite a claim. Then uh, he swings back to the military. He says, we have the best equipment in the world, the best planes, the best missiles, the best ships, the best everything, the greatest air force in the world, the largest pay rise, the best trained, the most technologically advanced, the best training in the world, and the most beautiful uniforms. Uh, it goes also on to saying uh, the lowest veterans unemployment. And he rounds up this speech by saying, America will forever remain the bravest, mightiest, and greatest nation on the face of the earth. Um, I think he, he, he talks about things being uh, the best, the greatest, the mightiest, some form, basically about once a minute through a 40-minute speech. It, it's constant. Uh, and it's why when uh, people talked about him having very small crowds for his inauguration, compared to Obama. He just kept on picking at, at that scab and, and couldn't quite take it because it implied that he wasn't quite being successful. And I think that's a very, very effective um, strategy uh, and at a micro level for a lot of parties, uh, political communications. I think there's a very important message, which is you want to say that most people agree with us most of the time, and we want to show that. Um, and that, now, actually, funnily enough, because most of the British people on most issues relatively centrist, uh, they, they instinctively believe that about us a bit more than the other parties because they feel that we stand 
for the whole country, not just for one segment of the country. Uh, so it's actually it's an easier thing for us to do than other parties in many ways, apart from the electoral popularity point. And that's where traditional campaigning, we have to say, well, actually, we might not be winning the general election, but we'll win in this constituency. It's yes. very important. And, and I get obviously the difference for the Lib Dems as well is that although the US presidential election is a form of first past the post, it's not whoever gets the most votes wins. Um, because if it was, there would have been far more Democrat presidents this century. But it's essentially a version of first past the post across the individual states. Proper American political nerds will be squealing in horror the way I've simplified that. <laughs> but I think what is different for the Lib Dems, though, is, is that because we're not one of the two big players in the public's eyes, or in Scotland, it's a slightly different pair of big players and, and to an extent in Wales as well. But, you know, because we're not one of the two sort of main parties, that needing to look popular is also important to just get us into the winning tactical votes rather than being squeezed tactically by other other parties so I think yeah. that's all the more important for us and it's partly why I think in the Lib Dems people often slightly misunderstand the purpose of a bar chart that it has multiple purposes one of which is about popularity and showing that look lots of people around here support us and that of course that point isn't one that you should solely make through a bar chart the, the thing that's always a bit my bet noir is the number of photos that only show, say, one Lib Dem candidate on their own. Yeah. Which is yeah. sort of the opposite yeah. of looking popular, isn't it? Yeah. And that's it. Is I think uh, yeah, even for signals like um, being scruffy in a photo are unhelpful to that feeling of being a serious player, popular player, etc. I, I don't think that means you have to be in a three-piece suit. Um, or, you know, or the equivalent, but I do think it means to be, you've got to, you're playing a role, and, and that role can be played in, in, in slightly different ways, but it, uh, what it definitely isn't is, is you need to look like you're a serious player. Um, and I think that there's this idea I, I want everyone to hold up, which is um, when Donald Trump said he might want to buy Greenland, <laughs> it, it's almost a perfect example, because it's insane. I mean, it, it's firstly, it's like, it's absolutely attention grabbing, because it's so ridiculous and it's so ambitious. Um, it, it's a simple idea because it's like buying a house. It's just a much bigger version of it. Um, uh, and it, it, it's obviously, it's kind of just like an enormous idea. And I think actually that's one of the really interesting things is uh, a lot of people in the Dems, and, and I'm guilty of this as much as anyone else, are policy wonks. We want to know about policy at work. Yeah, you would, you would but, be detail, in detail costing the, the purchase of Greenland, wouldn't you? Esther? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but the um, but the truth is, the uh, I think I uh, I talked to you about this recently. Uh, somebody once said that you know, uh, policy uh, policy is uh, is diagnosis disguised as cure. In other words, when you talk about a policy, it's not about the perfect answer to the problem the country faces on education. It's actually it's a metaphor for your broader approach to education. So when the party for many years had the 1pm income tax for education policy, the point about it wasn't that 1pm income tax would solve all our educational problems. It was we recognise there are tough choices to make on education uh, and that education is a very important issue. Um, and if we're willing to actually say something unpopular on that, it means we think it's very important. Um, and similarly, I, I think uh, on, on lots of 
other is issues we have to think about. What's the thing that conveys that we care about that issue? Um, and, and it's still, you know, I would say, it's much better to have policies that can work. Uh, in fact, we should have policies that can work. Uh, but if we have a, a list of 10 policies to choose from, I would choose uh, the policy that's most like green, buying Greenland, not to a policy that necessarily makes the biggest impact on the problem. Now, if you take control of a council, you need both. What you then you? prioritize is going to have to be the thing that impacts the problem most. Um, but hopefully, if you have that list of 10 policies, you have both of those in there. Um, and I think that's a very important uh, uh, difference uh, for us to understand. Mm. But you, if you promise we, to buy we, Greenland, you also need to remember to make some efforts to buy Greenland as well. It's sort of you need yeah, both. Yeah, you have to be serious about buying, buying yeah. Greenland. Yeah. And I think actually this is somewhere where I've changed my mind, where um, I trained as an environmental economist. Mm. Uh, my, so my first career, I, I worked uh, advising an African government on conservation and climate change and desertification and stuff like that. And, and uh, when I first saw environmentalists talk a lot about recycling, uh, when I looked at the sort of top 10 uh, environmental policies, no, no environmental economist has recycling at top 10. Um, now, I think so partly the, the evidence has changed. Uh, so it probably would be in the top 10 now, but it, would, so it still wouldn't be at the top. Uh, but the, I think where the environmentalists were right and I was wrong was they said this is a really powerful way to get people involved mm. in, uh, uh, in the environment um, and understanding environmental issues. So we should push hard on this because it will be the start of a bigger conversation on the environment. Uh, and I think actually environmentalists are absolutely right on that. Uh, and that's why actually recycling continues to be very important. Uh, now, it turns out there are actually very good policy reasons it's become more important uh, over time. Uh, but uh, I think that's, that's a very good example of an issue uh, where uh, the, uh, the buying Greenland aspect is important. Mm. But also you need to get people vested in the sense that this is something that matters and is relevant, uh, is relevant to them as well, isn't it? Which is where the recycling bit, it's almost a spectrum you can imagine taking people along from starting to recycle to being happier if there is say a carbon tax that increases the immediate cost Absolutely. of some of the yeah. goods and services through to you know, much more radical change that you need to take them along that journey and not just in a slightly puritanical policy focused way say it's only the end point that matters all of these other steps are irrelevant it's a journey as well um, and maybe that's the bit that trump does i think least with his arguments i i I, I think that sort of his use of simple words, grabbing attention, looking popular, clearly has worked very well for energizing a significant minority of the US and a large enough minority that was enough to win an election, albeit losing the popular vote. But it seems to me his weakness is probably his ability to win over other people. Uh, and that you're either very much, you know, in the, in his camp, in which case those messages and those tactics work really well, or you're not, in which case they don't win you over. So for just a sort of final question before we wrap up, where you're, as the Lib Dems are, you know, starting from a, a very different place of being much less popular and winning people over being much more important. Is there anything you would add or tweak in that list? Well... I, th I think the thing to remember at the moment is there are a lot of people who actually agree with the Lib Dems, but they don't know mm. that they agree with the Lib Dems. 
Uh, and the, the biggest problem we have are people who don't uh, understand what we stand for. Um, and the, the classic way uh, to build is to build on where you are. And so if you talk to people who do brand consulting in the, in the marketing world, they will say a brand isn't the logo. It's, it's what your customers think your brand is. Uh, so, you know, for Nando's as a restaurant chain, the brand of Nando's is probably is an affordable, decent meal out with my, my mates and family. Uh, and if you then want to evolve, uh, you have to start from where you are. Uh, and actually, I think uh, a couple of companies have done this really well we can learn from are, are Premier Inn uh, and EasyJet. Uh, and both of them 10 years ago had the perception of being cheap, but not very good. And both of them have managed to keep the cheap perception, but they've actually in increased the perception people have of them being a decent quality mm. thing. You know, 10 years ago, everyone would have thought of EasyJet as being like Ryanair, mm. sort of you know, pretty rubbish service, but very cheap. Well, now actually Ryanair has been left by itself is actually terrible. Well, EasyJet has perceived this thing significantly better. Similarly, Premier Inn has done a similar thing. And, and the relevance for us as a party is the one thing that the public do know about us at the moment is that we try to stop Brexit. Uh, and that says some positive things for us uh, as a party about international cooperation, uh, about tolerance, uh, about being pro-immigration. Uh, and whatever we do next, the only sensible way to build is to build on that, not to abandon it. Uh, and I think uh, whatever we do next, it's going to have to very, very carefully do that. Um, and I think people who think, oh, we shouldn't talk about Brexit anymore. They forget, firstly, it's not over. Mm. Uh, you know, we, we have got a transition period going on. Exactly. Um, Absolutely. Uh, but even, even when that thing, whatever it is, has, has been finished, uh, which may be decades time or maybe six months time, uh, even when that thing is finished, all of the follow-up issues, like the place of EU citizens in Britain, all three and a half million of them, um, and the tolerance of the country, they're going to be around for decades to come, and we're going to have to find ways to, to build on those, uh, ways that make, make sense to people. But if we just abandon what people already believe about us, uh, that's very, very confusing for people. Uh, and that confusion means you lose support. Uh, and it's a common, common thing uh, for brands to try and change direction too radically uh, and for them to fall to pieces uh, because of that. So I think it's actually very important we build on that perception that people have of all the good things we've already done in the last few years, uh, not just to abandon it. So one final quick question, because um, you've made quite a lot of reference to various pieces of research and the like. If anyone listening to this wants to whether read or listen or watch uh, to find out a little bit more, what would you recommend they dive into? Uh, there's a book called Yes uh, by Robert Cialdini, Steve Martin mm. and Noah Goldstein. Uh, came, out, came out 10 years ago, it's just been updated. And the, the updated edition has 60 uh, studies from the science of behaviour change. Uh, which are about why people behave these ways. Uh, each one of these studies is two or three pages. So it's a very easy and fun book to read. It's written in a very interesting and fun way. Also lots of videos on YouTube uh, by these people. Uh, and they help you think about different ways of doing it. So for instance, if you, if you go to a hotel room and the, the sign says, 
please hang up your towel to help the environment so the towel doesn't have to be washed again. That's about 20% less effective uh, than saying, please hang up your towel because lots of other people who stayed in this hotel room have hung up their towel too to help the environment. Now, what those people did irrationally should make no difference to whether or not you want to help the environment, but the reality is it does. Um, and so those, those case studies are really fun to read, uh, but they also give you ideas for stuff that you can take into the world of political campaigning. Excellent. Fantastic. Um, and as I mentioned at the start, you've done a great Twitter thread capturing many of the lessons about Trump, which I'll include in the show notes. And you can find Rob on Twitter at Rob Blackie. Donald Trump at Real Donald Trump, myself at Mark Pack, and this podcast at Bar Chart Podcast. So thank you very much to everyone for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this show. If you have, please do tell others about this show and the podcast in general. Go on, send a friend an email now. Otherwise, thank you until next time. Yeah.